you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, All the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, You say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, There is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, 
and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. This is a great passage this morning. I can't wait to dive into it with you. I'm just going to pray that God would really speak into our hearts this morning and that wherever you are at, whatever is going on in your life, you will be encouraged by what's in here because you should be. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word now, speak, we pray. Encourage us. Show us your glory as Moses prayed long ago. So we pray it now in Geelong in 2021 in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, um, when I was a third-year cadet at the Australian Defence Force Academy in Canberra, I was given an extraordinary honour. Quite unexpectedly, it was announced that I was going to be made the second in command of a thousand officer cadets and midshipmen. In front of everybody, I was singled out. I came forward and the Admiral pinned the brand new shiny rank slides on my shoulders. It's hard to tell how good it felt to be singled out and to be given this incredible responsibility and privilege. Uh, To this day, it is one of the proudest moments of my life. But a few weeks later, I went into the waiting room of the Admiral and it was a very different feel. The adjutant was seated behind his desk and he greeted me coldly and then told me to stand at attention before him and he told me how disappointed with me he was, how I had failed so badly the privilege that had been given to me. And as I stood there, I knew what was coming. It was going to be demotion, it was going to be punishment, It was going to be the public shame of having to explain to those people who weren't there what had happened. And even worse, I knew deep down that I had no one to blame except myself. It was one of the worst moments of my life. Well, the people of Israel at this point in the passage have had an infinitely greater privilege given to them. God has said that he's going to dwell in the middle of them. That the God of the universe is going to zoom down and be present with one people. What an incredible privilege. God has poured out his blessings on them, but they had ruined everything. If you were here physically last week, you'll know that Andrew Reid, our visiting preacher, explained to us the golden calf. That the people of Israel, while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the commandments of God, the people of Israel worship a golden calf and have a big party around that. They spit in God's face. They, They ruin everything. And now, if you like, as they sit in the waiting room, they know that they have no one to blame except themselves. But it's easy at this point for us to to think of them and to have ourselves at a distance. To not really, really feel 
what they might have felt, but think, well, we're in a different situation. We live a long time later. How, how could we experience what they've experienced because we haven't done what they have done, except that you and I, each one of us, have been accorded an incredible privilege. Each of us has been made in the very image of God. Each of us has been given in the book of Genesis dominion over this world, incredible privilege to to reflect the glory of God to the world in which we live. And each of us, Christian and non-Christian, each of us have fallen short of that. Now, we haven't worshipped golden calves, presumably, but we have been given great privileges and instead of returning those privileges to God in worship... Instead of loving those around us as we're called, so many of us, so much of the time, we have hungered after other things. We've we've worshipped other idols. We haven't given this glory to God that he deserved. And what is worse, our hearts are so hard and cold to that reality that as we sit in the waiting room, waiting to meet the God of all creation, What do we do? We sit and we look down and we play on our phones. This passage we look at this morning has very much at stake. And that's where we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 33. Did you notice as Pete read it to us that the people have forfeited the closeness and the intimacy of God? Yes, God has Last week we heard Moses has pleaded with the people to God and God has said he will not destroy the people. But notice, remember the tabernacle? God's tent that was going to dwell in the very midst of the people in their camp. Now we're told that Moses goes out from the camp, a long way from the camp. And he pitches a tent where he meets with God. But for the people, they are distant from the presence of God. And Exodus 33, verse 12, it it tells us, as Pete read, that that God and Moses are having a conversation. God and Moses are dialoguing about the situation. And and Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you'll send with me. Moses is saying, you've given me a big responsibility, but I don't know where you stand with this people and I don't know where you stand with me. And and then he makes an extraordinary request. He says, now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, because God has told him that he has found favor, if I've found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways. And Moses said to God, look, I've seen you and I've heard you, but show me your ways. And as Moses dialogues, he's saying, God, I want to know who you really are because things are pretty bad right now. The people have have done this. They've turned their back on you. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. So show me your ways. Who are you? And in verse 18, he he repeats it in different language. He says, please. Show me your glory. He's asking God to leave the pillar of cloud, to strip back 
all that hides him from Moses. And he's saying, Moses is saying to God, God, I want to know who you are now. Show me your glory. And God agrees. And we heard in, in verse 23 that he tells him how it's going to happen. He says, Moses, go up on the mountain alone. And then I'm going to put you in a cleft in a rock, maybe in a cave on the mountainside, and then I will appear before you. And I will put my hand over your face as I pass by, because you'd be consumed if you could see my glory face to face. But when I'm gone, I'll take my hand away, and you will see my back. And in preparation for that, and in a sign of hope, Moses is told to cut new tablets of stone and to bring these tablets on the mountain with him. Now imagine you, you were Moses going up on the mountain alone early. Imagine that you were going to meet God face to face. And the next day, it happens. Chapter 34, we didn't have it read, so if you do have your Bibles, I'm going on to 34, because this is where this, the heart of this passage is actually. 34 verse 5, the Lord, that's Yahweh, descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. Moses has said, I want to know your ways. He said, I want you to show me your glory. And now, he, and now God comes and he says, this is my name. In Bible times, to give someone your name was not just to give them something by which you were called. It was to tell them, to give them a handle on who you really were. That was your name. And the Lord, we're told in verse 6, passes before him. And he proclaims his name Yahweh, not just once, but, but twice for emphasis. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord. Uh, remember when Moses first met God uh, Mo at the burning bush, Moses said, who are you? What do I call you? And the Lord said, Yahweh, which means I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. In essence, God is saying to Moses, you can't really know me. I am so much, I will be who I will be. That, that's enough for you, Moses. Now on the mountain in verse six, the Lord comes and he is preparing to tell him what that name really means. It's extraordinary. God is about to pull back the curtain and show who he really is. Now, if that was you, if you were Moses, and you're on the mountain and the Lord appeared and he proclaimed to you his name, who he really was in his heart, what would you expect? Uh, what words, if there were dot, 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 the Lord proclaimed his name, which was dot, 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 what would you put there? Dane Ortland is, um, has written a book on this, a wonderful book. And he, he describes, I think, what at least what I feel, and I suspect that it's what you would feel God to say too, if that was you. And he says this, our deepest instincts expect God to be thundering, gavel swinging, 
judgment relishing. We expect, expect the heart, the bent of God's heart to be retribution to our waywardness. That's what we expect God to be, isn't it? But what is God like? What is his name? What is his ways? What is his glory? Well, in this passage in, in chapter 34, and I'm going to read it for you in a moment, God tells us exactly what his name is, what his glory is, what his ways are, and it's deeply shocking. Andrew Reid, uh, last week, he, he promised to tell us um, his, some of his favorite verses in the Bible, and he said, read through these chapters, see if you can pick them. Uh, he told me, and I'm not surprised, uh, because he's a Bible scholar, but they're chapter 34, verses 6 to 7. Because that's God lifting off the veil. These are passages that are quoted 16 different times, directly or indirectly, in the Old Testament. What God is about to say, it reverberates like a, a resounding gong through the whole of the Old Testament. This is who God is. This is hugely significant. So listen to it. God reveals His name, His glory, His ways, and He says this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, this is my name. Well, let's linger here for a moment. This is a, this is a mind which we will not go close to delving out in this time we have together. But quickly, let's, let's linger for a moment on what God, who God says He is. So firstly, the very first words out of God's mouth with His name, His identity, who He is, is merciful. The Hebrew word for merciful is linked to the, the Hebrew word for womb, God is, is saying that the kind of disposition God has is like the, the mother's love for her child. It's the womb love, the, the kind of accepting love that puts up with anything. And if your mum is homeschooling right now in this week ahead, that's the kind of mum she will need to be. Listen to that, mothers. Uh, then he says, the Lord is gracious. And, and we know grace because as New Testament believers, we hammer on this, and we should. Gracious is a disposition of goodness, to give goodness freely, even when it's not deserved. The Lord said He's merciful. He's got the mother womb love. He's gracious. And then He says, Yahweh, slow to anger. Now, literally in Hebrew, this is an interesting, um, interesting idiom. It literally means long-nosed. It says, God is long-nosed. Now, um, apparently, uh, I'm not long-nosed. I'm wide-nosed. Um, I've been told that I've got a little bit of a nose like a pig. It's short and stumpy. It's, it's the opposite to God's nose. God's nose is long. Mine is short and stumpy. And my kids tell me that sometimes when I get really angry, which is very, very rare, but occasionally I get really, really, apparently my nostrils flare. 
and I look like sort of the big fat pig about to charge at them. That's short-nosed. Anger that explodes very quickly. Um, Anger that's got its finger on the trigger ready to pull it. Short-nosed. God has long nose. And it kind of means that by the time the, the, the heat gets from him to the end of his nose, it's got all cold. Um, he, he's not easily angered. He, it takes a lot to get God angry. You've got to provoke him. You've got to work at it. He's long-nosed. And his default disposition is not anger. His default disposition is mercy and love and all of these things. And then he goes on to say, as if to reinforce it, the next definition is he is abounding in love. Abounding in love. This is the, the beautiful word which I, I, think, I think last year we looked at, chesed. Um, it, it means steadfast love. Unexpected, surprising, spontaneous, unobligated, overflowing love. And God says he shows this love to thousands, which can also be uh, translated thousands of generations. It's building up. You see, as God reveals his glory to Moses, you're getting the picture of who God is because he says then he is forgiving. The word uh, forgiving literally means to, to lift in Hebrew. And the idea is that, that when you have transgressed and sinned, you, you're like wearing a massive backpack that's pull it, pushing your face into the dirt and God is forgiving. He relieves the weight. He lifts the weight from you, the weight of what was due to you, the burden of your punishment. So, so God is, is together, word after word, phrase after phrase. He's saying, Moses, you want to know my ways? Here they are. You want to know who I am? You want to see my glory? I am who I am, Yahweh. Here you go. But then did you notice there's a, something that initially seems a little bit off key? Verse 7. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Hang on. This God is also, is also a punishing God. He visits iniquity. He, 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 he visits the sin on the children to the third and fourth generation. Yes, because God is not a softy. God is, is not a being who is too weak and sentimental to deal with injustice and evil. And I, let me tell you, we should rejoice in the fact that he does deal with injustice. We should rejoice in the fact that we have got a God who is strong enough and pure enough to deal with evil because that's who God is. God says, yes, I care about sin. Yes, I care about evil. I'm the only perfectly good being in the whole universe. Of course, I care about it. But we have to even read um, the weighting of it in this passage because he has been overflowing his kindness, his mercy, his goodness, slow to anger. Then he says he will deal with injustice and sin. But the balance of it is hugely underweighted. Uh, and the way he says it is, look, my, my mercy, it extends to a thousand generations. That doesn't mean that a thousand and one generations is exhausted. It means it's never ending. He says, but my judgment extends to the third and fourth. A thousand versus the third and the fourth. If you like, if you think of our sin and our rebellion, which is visited down to the next generations as like a, a polluted 
trickle in some sort of stagnant industrial overflow area. It's like the sin in our lives. It's going down the next generations. It's, it's a filthy little trickle. And then imagine that filthy little trickle going across the sands and into the pure, salty vastness of the Pacific Ocean. You see what God's saying? Your sin's like that. There's judgment, third and fourth generation, but overwhelming mercy which lasts forever. You see, Israel had wrecked everything. They thought God was done with them. They thought there was no way back, that the covenant was broken, as smashed up as those tablets which Moses had smashed when he saw the idolatry of the golden calf. And God says, in answer to Moses' request, you want to see my glory? Here it is. Not gavel swinging, judgment, vindication, a retribution, no. Slow to anger, merciful, full of steadfast love, forgiving. And in chapter 34, verse 10, if you read ahead, it, there's this wonderful moment of celebration where, where God reinstitutes the covenant. That's the end of this passage. Not, no, God will not be distant from the people anymore. He's coming back to live with them. And there's this wonderful um, proclamation of what has happened in chapter 34, verse 10, as God's mercy overflows. He says, behold, I am making a covenant. Before all of your people, I will do marvels such as I've not created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it's an awesome thing that I'm going to do with you. God in his nature and his being acts in accordance with that with his people Israel. They get another chance. Well, what does it mean? Well, in some ways we, we get what it means. I hope right now as you're looking at the image of God that you're being encouraged if you are lamenting this week, you, you, you are sensing that this is the God who is with you, who is for you. But let's think specifically two things. And the first one is, is that when we see God's definition of himself, of his glory and his ways, we see very clearly that our thoughts of God are often so very badly wrong. We imagine ourselves sitting in the waiting room, waiting for the hammer to fall, waiting for the judgment to be poured out on us, the judgment that we know we deserve. And we imagine that kind of judgment because that's what we would do. And we imagine that kind of judgment because what we tend to do is we create God in our own image. We say, this is what our heart is like, so therefore God would be the same. And friend, this is an encouraging truth, but you need to hear it straight. You're not God. You're created in His image. You don't create Him in yours. And that's a wonderful truth. God is who He will be. God is who He is. He's Yahweh. And He reveals who He is, and He will be that. And He's a God of steadfast love no matter what you think about Him. And many of our thoughts of God are so desperately wrong. And what this view of God does is desperately destructive for us. 
Listen to Dane Ortland again as he describes it. It's, this, this is really worth listening. Listen to this. The fall in Genesis chapter 3 is not only sent, has not only sent us into condemnation and exile. The fall also entrenched in our minds dark thoughts of God. Thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. And listen to this. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool towards him in the wake of it. Doesn't that describe how you and I so often relate to God? Dark thoughts of God. The dark thoughts of God that says, God, you can't really be trusted. I read your word, but it doesn't look good. That I'm going to have to struggle for what is mine because you don't really care for me. So I will take, take it. These dark thoughts of God, not as the loving, merciful, compassionate Father, but as the God who is distant and, and judging, lead us to sin, isn't it? Grabbing the things that are not ours to take and thinking that in them we will find satisfaction. And what we find in them is, is alienation, it's emptiness, and then the dark thoughts of God that keep us from coming back to Him, that keep us cold towards Him, that keep us wallowing in the things that we hate. This is Satan's greatest victory in our life, isn't it? As he said, maybe not the sin we regularly indulge in, but the attitude of our hearts. That's Satan's greatest victory, and it's, it's idolatry. We often believe a false image, or we, we, and then we represent to, other, to others a false image of the God who we proclaim we know. And then we wonder at times why it's not good news. This is who God is. As you sit in the waiting room, this is the God you will meet. When the adjutant death himself one day comes to take you into the presence, not of the admiral, but of the divine creator of the universe, what will we see? God must reveal what we will see. And he says we will see a heart of kindness and mercy. It's the first thing. Secondly, though, if you're like me, you are tempted to envy Moses. If you're like me, you think, if only I could see God. Even he's back, right? If only God would speak to me audibly and I would be taken up on the mountain and, and he would show me his glory and he was tangible and, I, and I, I could see all of this, then I would always trust God and I'd find it easy to live for God in a world, world that even goes in all sorts of directions. We say, I want to see God. I want to see God's glory. But the reality is that, that Moses only saw a shadow of God's glory. Even in that moment, God puts his hand over his face for his own protection so he's not incinerated. Moses only sees a shadow. But in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh, and we have seen his glory. 
the Word became flesh. We have seen His glory full of grace and truth. In Jesus Christ, we see the glory of God. In the book of Exodus, God tells us about His glory. In the New Testament, we see God's glory. He shows it to us. And why would you and I be at all surprised that when the glory of God finally appears, when God shows us His glory, why would we be surprised that it looks exactly like God said it would be way back in Exodus? Why would we be surprised that Jesus represents exactly who God said He was? And we can see Jesus in action throughout the New Testament. We can see his heart overflowing in the way he relates to the people he encounters, in the words that he speaks. Here is not a gavel-wielding, retribution-filled God. Jesus said, I don't come to judge the world. I come to save it. Hearts warm to him. They should warm to him. But you know what? This book I've been reading by Dane Ortland, it's called Gentle and Lowly. And it asks the question, where is the one moment in the New Testament where Jesus reveals his heart in words? Like Exodus. Where, where's the Exodus 34 moment in the New Testament? Where is it? Where does Jesus give us his heart? Do you know where he does? The only time that Jesus says who he really is. Show me your glory. Teach me your ways. Where does Jesus do that? I'll read it for you. Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father except the, the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Hear what he says? Jesus says, you want me to show me your glory? You, you, you want me to, to show you who I really am? You want to see my heart? You want to see God? I am gentle and lowly. The only place Jesus with words shows us his heart, gentle, lowly. And I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but that's what I need to hear. That the God who made me, the God who made this world with all its brokenness, is gentle and lowly. I can come to him. I can rest in him. And friends, Friends, as, 
as we encounter a world with all of its brokenness. We need to be gentle and lowly too, don't we? As we respond to a world that's politically fractured and and full of tensions and stresses, you, if you are one of God's people, your attitude is gentleness and lowliness. Because that's who God is, that's who the Lord Jesus is, and that's the one we want to reflect to the world. Gentle, lowly, the friend of sinners, the one who came to seek and save that which was lost. That's who Jesus is. And that's good news. Well, I was terrified as I sat in the uh, waiting room for the Admiral at the Australian Defence Force Academy. I was totally miserable. But I was also angry and resentful. I was angry and resentful that, hey, other people did this thing and, and why am I only I being punished? Why am I being singled out? And, and while I was waiting to be called into his room, I was determined that I was going to go down fighting. I was going to go down with my, my chin up and I was going to go out swinging. But when I finally got called in to the admiral, he didn't yell, he didn't shout, In fact, he said something totally unexpected. He said these words. He said, Andrew, I know that you call yourself a Christian. Do you think Jesus would have done what you've done? I deserve judgment. I was guilty but I'd harden my heart, and these words totally undid me. I didn't expect this. I expected a strong retribution. I was going to say, yep, okay, fine. And then the tears welled up in my eyes, which is not good when you're an army cadet. And then the admiral said, go out now. Take an hour. Walk around the parade ground. And when you come back, I want you to tell me how you're going to lead from here. It totally undid me. And as I walked around the parade ground with the tears coming out, I was, I was grieving what, the way I behaved. I was, um, I, was, I was coming to God and saying, I'm sorry for having thrown you under the mud by a man I don't think even knows you. But I was also incredibly touched by his heart. It was the last thing I expected to see in a senior military officer, but there it was. And in that little instance, we see a far deeper picture of God's heart. He didn't, God doesn't treat us like a, a piece of sewage. He can't wait to flush away. He doesn't even hold his nose as he comes close to us in all of our brokenness and rebellion. The one who is, in Exodus 34, merciful, gracious, forgiving, slow to anger, full of steadfast love. That one comes close to us and he says, I'm not finished with you. i got plans for you. I'm with you. So as I close, let me ask, are you far from God this morning?
Maybe you feel far from him because you're angry at what's going on around in our world. Maybe this morning you're harboring dark thoughts about God, that God is some kind of angry judge looming over to you. I pray that this morning you will hear the encouragement in these texts, that you will come to God as he is. Forget your idolatry, creating an image of God which doesn't exist in your own image. Come to the God who reveals himself. Moses said, show me your glory, show me your ways. And God does. And this morning I pray you would focus 100% on Jesus, gentle and lowly. Because he longs. He longs to comfort me and he longs to comfort you. Come to him this morning. Come to him today. Because no one who comes to him, Jesus said, will he ever turn away. Let's pray. Gentle and lowly. Lord God, we come before you this morning. We thank you that you showed Moses your glory and it wasn't what Moses expected. Thank you, Lord, that uh, when, when you came, you, you didn't just show him power and you, you described with words who you are. And we thank you that when Jesus came, you showed us in his life. And we pray, Lord, that we lean into you this morning, that however we feel, that right now by the power of the Holy Spirit, wherever we are, you would show us afresh the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.